what is happening to really ensure that Black lives matter? For example, are you changing laws and policies that will actually affect Black lives when it comes to policing? What are you doing to really affect the lives of pe marginalized people in our laws and systems and, and legal avenues to ensure that they're protected? Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Mia Schultz was tapped to be president of the Rutland branch of the NAACP in December 2020, she became one of Vermont's most visible and important racial justice advocates. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was founded in 1909 and is the oldest and largest civil rights organization in the U.S. with more than 2,200 branches. Schultz hails from Arizona and moved to Bennington, Vermont in 2016. She is the first black woman to chair the Bennington Democratic Party and serves as one of three commissioners on Vermont's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In honor of Black History Month, I asked Mia Schultz to share her story of how she became a civil rights activist. Uh, when I was in high school, I found myself finding activism um, in Arizona when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King holiday was um, in the process of being recognized as a as a as a holiday in that state. Um, there was a lot of pushback and as a result I found myself um, marching, um, phone banking and and um, advocating for an official Martin Luther King holiday. Um, that eventually did pass. As we know, uh, most of our 50 states celebrate Martin Luther King as an observed holiday. Our nation does as well. And um, I received at that time, as a high school student, a an award from the NAACP. Um, and uh, now I just went on my life, went to college, Went to Howard University, uh, which is a historically black college and university, um, was always really interested in activism and liberation and the um, eradication of racism and, and hate. But it was never something that I really thought would be a career or something that would be um, that I would pursue in any kind of way formally. Um, so I went on my life. I had some kids. And uh, this was all happening on the West Coast when I had kids on like in California, Arizona, and found myself in Vermont in 2016. And it was like nothing. I, I really. What what brought you to Vermont? Well, it was I needed a change from California. It was too much hustle and bustle. It was, it was way too much. I did not want to go back to Arizona. And an opportunity opened up for me to purchase a house um or part of a house with a family member and I thought well why not like that's the land of Bernie and um you know the hippies and Ben and Jerry and how could it how could it that go wrong and it sounds quaint and a good place to raise children um which is I, I found myself as a, a a single mother with two children of my own I have other children as well but these two 
were my own were were mine, not my kind of adopted ones. So um, if I just wanted a good life for them, something that I could sustain, and Vermont felt like the perfect place. Um, when I arrived right away, there was a sense of like we were did not belong. There was a there were there were stares, there were comments, just offhanded comments. And then when my kids entered school, the racial slurs began and they were sort of brushed off. They were like, oh, well, you know, you're different. You should understand. Like this is people don't the kids don't really see whole lot of kids like you and it's just you know they didn't mean anything by it um and, you, and you, this was in bennington where you landed this is in bennington yes we moved to bennington turns out you know i did have deep-rooted history in the new england area my grandmother did live here and i got to be more close to her who she was in saratoga springs new york and so we ended up becoming it ended up being a very good move for me um, and my family in terms of being close to my aging, my 90 year old grandma at the time. Um, and I got to spend her last days with her. And it turns out I even had family who who spent some time in Bennington, um, didn't even know that before. So it seems like it was all meant to be in some sort of way. Although we did experience some things that I thought were curious, right? That were egregious in some ways, our kids. And so that kind of turned me into an activist. I had to protect my kids in a school, in a school system that didn't really see them, understand them, have have processes and places to protect them. Um, I understand one incident involved in school, your child, your son, I believe, was asked to role play a character in the Atlantic slave trade? Yeah, yeah. He was he was asked to lay on the floor and reenact the Middle Passage. Um, and I, like, immediately was, like, that, you know, abhorred. I'm like, why are we, like, reenacting slave? What other parts of history, the violent history, do we reenact? Like let's let's be real. Like, do we ask our children to reenact? But um, that teacher, by the way, had been doing that for fourteen years. The pushback was, "I've always done that." So my heart was just beating out of my chest. I actually called the NAACP for help. Hmm. Tabitha Moore, the founding president of the Rutland Area NAACP, helped me get through that situation. Um, ad advocated advocated with the principal and uh, things were resolved pretty much even led to some equity training in the school for the first time some bias implicit bias training and it kind of all snowballed from there I, I I started finding myself in different opportunities with like the root social justice would have over in Brattleboro they had um, events where it was BIPOC only spaces and I was able to, you know, kind of get community and validation for a lot of the experiences that we had been going through and learn about, you know, kind of the activism scene in Vermont, how there were people, white people in particular, who were willing to want to have these discussions and make real change. And also there were, you know, 
a good about good amount of people of color here who were who were doing amazing things in this in this world. So I started creating um, spaces for BIPOC people to gather in Bennington. Um, we would have like cookouts, you know, so food Sundays. I did a lot of that stuff with Kaya Morris, who was at the time going through her own challenges in Bennington. It was um, a difficult time for her as a state representative and as a just a black woman living in Vermont. And as we know, that really her story was pretty significant. And, and it and had a big for, impact yeah, on me. For, and for people who don't know her story, Kaya, who's been a guest a number of times on this program, was subjected to intense racial harassment and stalking. Um, I believe the uh, she sued a Bennington, the Bennington police and settled yeah. because they did not take seriously her complaints. Um, and she ultimately resigned uh, as a state representative. Yes, and not only that, she was basically ran out of town. She had to sell, they had to sell their home and move from town. The effect of that on other people of color was enormous, including myself. Um, quite frankly, it was a it was not only a wake-up call to like how we're not really protected in Bennington as people of color, our truths, our realities, the things that happen to us are not protected not only in the schools as we had, you know, um, experienced personally that, but then even as adults, as homeowners, as community members, as state representatives, like if somebody like Kaya Morris, who is working on behalf of us was experiencing of us, all of us collectively, the, the town of Bennington in our state legislator, legislature like what could happen to us who are unknown um Kaya kind of when she left she you know always supported me put me in places where I could use my voice so did Tabitha um and I found myself being in places and spaces that I thought I would never never be um and started getting trained up I was being trained up and here I am now um you know I think it's been three and a half years, four years since I've been a claims adjuster. Um, and I've been kind of like a community act, a community organizer. I've been um, an activist, of course. And now I am um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner. Well, let's uh, pick up that last uh, piece. You're one of three commissioners on the Vermont's new Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What does the Truth Commission do? And what are some of the things you've heard thus far that have really stuck with you? Um, so let's see. Well, first of all, truth and reconciliation in, in general is different from what the way that we are set up at, in general, internationally uh, and nationally. Truth and reconciliation normally um, takes over one um, specific issue, specific atrocity, if you will, and against one specific group. And uh, the Vermont legislature last year, year before, yes, year passed Act 128 that it encompassed actually the full history of laws and policies in the state of Vermont and 
like basically every marginalized group ever to have experienced discrimination. So the scope itself is very different. So we um, we are approaching this in a very um, intentional way, an inclusive way. And so there are, yes, three of us. Um, and we are to seek the truth, the truth from the past, um, whether that's the the history of eugenics that this this state has um has like basically we have to confront the um atrocities of eugenics confront the atrocities of slavery and although we like to think that vermont was the beacon of you know they they we vermont was the state that essentially abolished slavery first there were caveats to that. And we also know that it didn't really end when they say it ended. There were still enslaved people far after the time that they abolished it. Um, we are to look in like poverty um, into the poor camps and just the overall history of Vermont and people of color um, and those with disabilities. Because when we look at not only just eugenics, um, just the way accessibility issues in Vermont and discrimination against those who have disabilities, there's a there's a lot to address there as well. So that's um, a lot of work uh, to so, look at that history. And, mm -hmm. and so that is uh, the truth part, getting the truth, the truth about part. our history. Getting the truth about the history, how it relates to the to the present so that we don't continue it in the in the future. And then there's a reconciliation part, which looks different for everybody, right? We, reconciliation should be in some ways restorative to the victims. Um, so we haven't quite landed on how, what that looks like for each individual or for our state. But at the end, we do have a report that we will, in the end is three years, as of now, three years, we will have concluded taking all of the true statements, doing all of the research and, um, you know, doing the reconciliation with uh, reconciliation partners is what we call them. Those are, that would be the state entities um, that were, you know, um, responsible for the discrimination, evaluating the laws. And then we write a, a, rec a report of recommendations that we hope the legislature will will enact, will take very seriously and enact. Can you kind of give people a sense of, you know, the the realities of, of the workings of the commission? What have you heard? What's a story that you've heard that perhaps you didn't know about prior to this work or that surprised you? Um, I, there was, uh, there were some stories about restraints being used in schools against kids with, um, mental and physical disabilities that I was quite shocked about. Um, and they were fairly recent, so it wasn't like a, a big past. Um, I was recently, um, enlightened or recently brought to my attention about, the St. Joseph's or Orphanage. We talked to a group of people who were survivors from St. Joseph's Orphanage and how um, basically if you were poor, 
this was a place that you would be sent or a place that if your um, parents had mental um, issues, had issues, mental illness issues, you would be sent to St. Joseph's and just basically the inhumanity that these children had to endure was shocking um, and really difficult to um, to process. I could never imagine uh, some of the things that I, the stories that we have heard recently around that. Um, and then even looking into the process of eugenics and sterilization of people and how, how you know, um, inhumane that was and how people also thought at the time it was the right thing to do. And that is what the paradox of that, right? We're talking about progressive people at the time who really thought this was the right thing to do to handle some of our societal problems. And for me, that's just really hard to wrap my head around. But I also see kind of a um, that happening now, that we will have laws and legislation that are created because they think it's the right thing to do because they think this is this will will solve the problems but they don't do it they don't do things without by looking excuse me they don't really look at the root of the problem address the root issues give, they, give me an example band-aids on on those sorts of things right well i have a big example that might cause a lot of um controversy but it wouldn't necessarily be work related to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, although it could be in the wheelhouse. It's really work that as an NAACP president that I've kind of come across, and that's the issue of mascots. <laughs> mascots have been apparently the biggest thing that I've ever worked on, even though I've done some amazing things, I think, interpersonally, um, especially. Um, but it seems to be the most controversial thing to just change a moniker so that it's not offensive to groups of people. So a, a lot of, you know, a lot of the mascot controversies are, are end up being very local and people don't know what's going on. So you're talking to a statewide audience. Like, tell us what the mascot controversy that you've been involved so in the mascot well it, it's interesting though because so the mascot controversy would be for example in Rutland we had there was there was a mascot called the Rutland Raider Rutland Raiders which had um been previous than that the that the Red Raiders and had a history of being attributed to um Native Americans a Native American culture, and we were looking to remove that. It's time to not like use the imagery of Native Americans um, in this way, but because it's so attached to sense of belonging, to sense of place, there was a lot of controversy about removing a mascot that people had been accustomed to, regardless of whether or not it was racist. So there's this local school boards who were determined whether or not mascots should are racist. First of all, people who don't really understand racism were making these determinations 
based on their own experience and lens that, you know, this is, this is my high school where I, you know, had, had my first prom or my first homecoming dance and you're going to take my mascot, which therefore then takes away those memories. I don't know, but the, this was very heated. It got national news when we tried to, to ask for the removal of the mascot. That is something I actually had started before I became president in the Rutland area, but we continued to have these fights for many, many years. They got very, very visible um, and then eventually there are no more Raiders in Rutland at the high school. It's just called Rutland. Um, but there's still other, uh, mascots in Vermont that are really problematic. For example, Randolph, they have a mascot called the galloping ghost. It's a man on a horse with a sheet on him. They call it a ghost, but a black person would walk in there and look at and see the KKK. And yet there's still controversy on whether or not that's racist. It doesn't matter if one person doesn't believe a white person who, for example, who doesn't have that experience with the KK doesn't believe it's racist. I've had students come to me and say, I was shocked that there was a KK man on the on a horse looking like the KKK when I went to play sports at this um, high school. So there was a law that was written to sort of address that recently. And so the, here we go back to not really asking the people how to write that law in a very substantial way or listening to the people because I did testify. And they wrote a law. We tested it, Judy Dow and I. And that got um, a lot of, that was controversial and it led to, and, and still we don't have a sufficient law to be able to eradicate these mascots. You've talked about work, anti-racism work that is performative and not substantive. Explain what you mean. Thank you for that. Um, well, so hanging up a Black Lives Matter flag for example, that that makes us feel good. It makes us make a statement. It's an important one. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. But what is happening to really ensure that Black lives matter? For example, are you changing laws and policies that will actually affect Black lives when it comes to policing? What are you doing to really affect the lives of pe marginalized people in our laws and systems and, and legal avenues to ensure that they're protected. And so um, a performative piece would be to have a panel to discuss it, discuss it, let's hear your stories and then not do anything about it and not take those stories and make change out of it, meaning laws that and policies that might actually change the way that we experience living here in Vermont. That is that that's that's what I mean by that. One of the issues uh, that you've addressed in your role at the NAACP is the overpolicing of people of color. Uh, and you've pointed out that uh, black adults enter Vermont correctional facilities at more than seven times the rate of white adults. 
Black and Latinx drivers are four times more likely to be pulled over and nearly three times more likely to be searched, and yet they're half as likely to be found with contraband, um, meaning that they are pulled over just for their skin color. Has right. there been any ch meaningful change in that um, over-policing issue? I mean, so, well, first of all, yeah, I would say no. Our, our, incar our incarceration rates would probably be the same based on the complaints that I hear, just the just the, the world that I live in. I'm still seeing that people are being incarcerated at higher rates. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily um, been changed. I don't have the new data. I don't know. It's really hard to collect that data because data sets are very small here in in Vermont with like 1.5% black people and 2% anyway, you know that, that it's a very small population of people of color here. And so knowing the actual data, but as far as on the, on the ground, I don't see that different at that having being any different. Um, I do, I do know that there are towns and cities that are trying to make that different. They're trying to put in systems where um where they change um they have training the criminal on a statewide level the criminal justice council has been doing a lot of work to create a space to evaluate specific officers and really hold them accountable for their actions i know that there are probably uh, there are there are processes in place but yet i have not heard of any change in, in all your activism, what is something that has made you feel like you've made a difference, that you've actually moved the needle on racial justice in Vermont? Wow. Um, well, that's a big question because there are days that I, I mean, that are hard. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why would I be doing something like this? And I think the thing that keeps me going is the successes that I have interpersonally with people. About 90% uh, of the work that we I do is behind the scenes. Um, and the things that I don't even, the people that I don't even know I've touched, including my people who are now out there starting community conversations and um, their own initiatives in their towns, gathering people, having those difficult conversations that I talk about all of the time. And I've seen that actually manifest in real life. And I think that is what keeps me going, is the fact that this is sort of had the domino effect and that um, having an interpersonal relationship with people and being able to move them into action and and that it, of course means other people being moved that is the most profound thing i think that keeps me actually going well mia schultz i want to thank you for joining us on the vermont conversation i appreciate you having me here have a yeah. happy black history month well, thank you will do Mia Schultz is the president of the Rutland Area NAACP and a member of Vermont's Truth and Reconciliation Commission.